Genesis 3, 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And Adam, to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Paige. So we continue in our series in Genesis 3. And we're going to camp in Genesis 3 for, all right, we're, series is in Genesis. We're going to camp in Genesis 3 for just a few weeks. We've got one more week of it. Now, what we've seen last week is that the man and woman reached out and took this thing that God said you cannot have. And they did so at the behest of a serpent. And what that actually was, was an act of allegiance. They were throwing their lot in with the serpent instead of with God. And when that happened, it was something like nuclear war. It was like a detonation went off. A nuclear bomb of sin exploded. And like a, I mean, this is an analogy. It's not a perfect illustration. But like a nuclear explosion, you know, immediately there are massive death consequences, right? Bomb goes off, there's death. But the consequences extend beyond that immediate detonation, for generations to come with nuclear fallout. And that's a little bit like what God is explaining here. So it's like a bomb went off and then they're looking around at the carnage, having now experienced death, separation from each other and separation from God. They're looking at the carnage and going, what kind of world are we gonna live in now? What's this place gonna be like now that that bomb has gone off? And God speaks first to the serpent and then to the woman, and then to the man, and he tells them, here's what kind of world you're going to live in. You're going to have a persistent and deadly enemy. He's going to be after you. You're going to have sorrow and pain in your bodies and in your relationships. And even though you're going to work for a living, all of it's going to end in death. That's what kind of world we're living in now. But it's not all doom and gloom. There's still light. Leonard Cohen wrote in a song once, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. It's one of my favorite lines. So we're going to, you know, look at this section from Genesis 3 and look for the light, but we have to look at the cracks first. So we're going to do it in three points since there's three uh, addresses, serpent, woman, man. We're going to look at even in judgment, there's hope for mercy. Even in sorrow, there is hope for joy. And even from death, there is hope for life. All right, let's dig right in. Number one, hope for mercy in judgment. We're gonna focus on verses 14 to 15, God speaking to this serpent. 
So the reality is, and I think we've talked about this before, but every time we sin, we're both villain and victim, right? We really are responsible for our sins. We really are responsible for our bad choices and our rebellion and our disobedience. But on the other hand, we also really are the victim of something. We also have been deceived. We've been oppressed by a bigger villain than we are. And here in the first kind of stroke of mercy, God turns his attention first to the true villain, not to us kind of lesser villains. There are consequences for our sin, but there's a curse for the serpent. And isn't it a comfort to know that when God looks at us, even in our sins, he looks at us with pity. That helps me. So first let's think about judgment for the serpent. Let's look at verse 14 again. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Uh, This is, you could draw a line back to in the text where Eve says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So because you have done this, deceived the woman, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now the first readers of this text would have heard about this talking serpent in the garden of God, and they probably would have thought of some sort of grand vizier, some sort of advisor, kind of like the, the, the parrot in Jafar, right? Isn't that the, or the bird in Lion King, right? Zazu, is that his name? <laughs> yeah. They would have thought about that serpent as some sort of lofty positioned being with wisdom to dispense. And here he gets a demotion. On your belly you shall go and you're gonna eat dust. The same sort of dust that man is going to return to in death, right? The serpent gets death for food. And we know that this serpent, we're not just talking about a snake, we're talking about the devil, Satan. Uh, Those aren't personal names, by the way, they're titles. Satan just means the accuser and the devil is like your enemy. And we know that from a lot of places in scripture, um, Revelation 12, nine is probably the clearest. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. I love that part. So for this ancient serpent, the devil, there is judgment. He might be the ruler of this world for now, And some of you probably feel that keenly to be true, but his reign of terror will come to an end. His days are numbered. There is no hope of restoration for the serpent. There's no redemption story for the devil. And I think that's incredibly good news. There is no scenario where this unholy alliance between the devil and humanity continues on unchecked. God's got him on a leash. And what does the serpent say for himself? Nothing. When's the next time the devil speaks in the Bible? It's not until Job. And after that, it's not until Matthew. When, when Satan is in the presence of the holy God and God has something to say, he keeps his forked tongue behind his teeth. We do not live in a world of dualism where good and evil are constantly fighting an arm wrestling to see who's going to win and how this is going to turn out. God wins. 
That's where the power lies. I take such comfort in the power and sovereignty of God that we're not guessing what the outcome will be. We know. So there's judgment for the serpent. Now, the the main point um, header, point number one, is hope for mercy in judgment. Now, I don't mean mercy for the serpent. I mean mercy for the serpent's seed. Bear with me. Verse 15 goes on. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the serpent probably thought that he would hold sway over humanity after the fall. They're going to make some gesture of allegiance with me, and then they'll be mine, and then I win, right? But God makes him a promise of what the future will hold. The first overt promise in the Bible from God is to the devil. Isn't that fascinating? He says that this is the promise. The head of the serpent is going to be crushed by the seed of the woman. That's the promise. Sure and final victory over the evil mastermind of the world is an inevitability in God's hands. Now notice the word offspring here. Um, it's the Hebrew word is, is seed. Um, this is one of those you know, things where I can't undo that I've learned this as seed. So I'm gonna have to explain it to you so that when I accidentally say seed instead of offspring, you know what I'm talking about, right? The Hebrew word is seed. And that word can be singular or collective noun. The word offspring works the same way in English, right? You can mean one offspring or a bunch of offspring. It's singular or collective. This really matters. The serpent's seed are treated as a collective noun. There's going to be a bunch of these offsprings, a bunch of these seeds in the story. You read through Genesis all the way through 1 Samuel and all the way into the New Testament. You'll find the serpent's seed in Cain, in Ham, Canaan, Goliath, Herod, the Pharisees, it goes on and on. And that's just to name a few. But the woman's seed is treated as a singular noun. I know this is grammar. I'm sorry, bear with me. Grammar matters in the Bible. Notice at the end of verse 15, he shall bruise your head. We're not talking about the victory of the church. We're talking about the victory of the head of the church, the seed of the woman. The church fathers called this verse the proto-euangelium, the first gospel, because it's the first plain promise of Jesus, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The first gospel right here, Genesis 3.15. So if Jesus is the seed of the woman, singular, then who are we in this story? Verse 15 again, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity. The seed of the serpent are the ones who are at odds against the woman's seed. The seed of the serpents are those who resist the rule of Christ. Who among us here wasn't that at one point? I was for many years. Everyone who opposes the seed of the woman is the serpent seed or is acting like the serpent seed. It's why Jesus looked at the Pharisees and the scribes who were opposing him and his ministry. And he said, your father is the devil. You can't get more plain than that. 
Your father is the devil and he's been lying from the beginning. Okay, so now we know who we are in the story. We know who Jesus is in the story. Now whose head does he crush? Ours? No, he crushes the serpent's head. There's enmity between the seed of the serpent and Jesus, but the serpent is the one that gets crushed. Did you ever notice that? Jesus takes aim at the villain. That's mercy. You know, in South Sudan, there's been civil war going on for about a decade now, maybe longer. And the villains in the war in South Sudan have a really wicked tactic of going into villages and kidnapping all of the children. And then they put AK-47s in their hands and they make them fight their war. They make them commit atrocities. The children really do commit the evils, but they're forced to. They're slaves in a war that is not their own. We feel that it's right to bring justice to the villain and liberty to the victim. Please don't hear me undermining personal responsibility for sin. We are both villain and victim. We inherit our sin from Adam and we agree with him in our actions every single day. We're not meant to look at Adam and think that, you know, he was ridiculous for taking that fruit. We never would have done such a thing. We're supposed to look at Adam and go, right, I reach out and take that fruit every day. And I am responsible. But we're also deceived. The Bible holds both of those realities in tension and we must also. And it is a beautiful token of the mercy of God that even in the midst of judgment on the evils of the world, God seeks to free the slaves of the dictator. That's remarkable. One of the reasons I like Lord of the Rings is because the orcs are just evil, right? You don't have to feel bad about going to war against the orcs. There's no good in them. God's story is like that, except he's determined to redeem those orcs. That's the mercy of God. I'm sorry, it's the nerdiest illustration, but it gets me down in here because I love Lord of the Rings. Instead of punishing us, which Jesus had every right to do because we have committed atrocities in the devil's war. And instead of crushing us, he crushes the serpent. He gives us freedom. So there's hope for mercy in judgment. Number two, there's hope for joy through sorrow. Let's look at verse 16. Now, uh, God is addressing the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply, not introduce, multiply, your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the woman will experience the fruit of sin chiefly in these two ways, multiplying pain or sorrow in childbirth and conflict with man. Now, a lot of sermons have been preached and a lot of ink has been spilled over the kind of the sociological dimensions and the effect that sin has on childbearing and gender relationships and all of that. And I don't have 
time to get into all of that today. Plus, I think you've probably already heard it all. But here's what it basically boils down to is that we experience nuclear fallout from sin in these two ways. Pain and sorrow when it comes to having children or not having children. Both of those realities are from the fall. And constant conflict and tension when it comes to woman and man. Those two things. So that's true on the face of it. And I, like, we don't even have to be persuaded of that. We just know as men and women in this world, yep, <laughs> rings true, right? But there's a deeper truth that's being told here. The Bible picks up this imagery a hundred times, more than a hundred times. I didn't count. That was supposed to be a thousand times. And when it picks up the language of pain and childbearing, or the tension and conflict between the desires between man and woman, it's telling a different story. That is to say, there's more to the consequences of sin than family strife and those sorts of things. There's something bigger going on. And that is this. Now, what is this world going to be like? It's going to be full of sorrow and pain. And it's through your sorrow and pain that you will experience your most profound joys. Jesus himself picks up the same words and language in this context in John chapter 16, verse 20 and following. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, same word as pain in Genesis 3, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In this world, the most profound joy only comes through the deepest sorrow. You cannot have the joy without the sorrow. The pain of childbirth is a crack in this broken world through which the light shines. And it reminds us that because of Jesus, our sorrows are not being replaced by joy. It's not like you had sorrow and then you got a new joy and then you forgot about the sorrow over here. It's that your sorrow is being transformed into joy. It's better than replacement. It's redemption. Jesus is speaking to his disciples at the level of their deepest sorrow. What are they sorry about in John 16? That Jesus says, I'm leaving. Separation from God is death. And they have come to understand this is God himself wrapped in human flesh and he's leaving. This feels like death, Jesus. And he says to them, yeah, it's like childbirth. Didn't I tell you in Genesis 3? That that's exactly what this would be like. Sin results in separation from God and in sorrow, but I'm going to redeem that, he says, and turn it into your deepest joy. And no one will take that joy from you. I love that. Now, number three. This is the man's address, the God's address to the man. Um, this is verses 17 to 19, and the point is hope for life from death. Let me read from 17 again. 
to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So before the fall, Adam is in the garden of delight in the presence of God, just receiving from the generosity of God. And the the picture that we get there of God's generosity and what it's like to just be in sort of perfect fellowship with him, just receiving is of the fruit tree, the tree of life, kind of bowing so laden with fruit that it's bowing its limbs down right to your level. You just walk up. You don't even have to get a ladder out. You just grab it. You just receive from God. That was his reality. And now the man has to wade through thorns and thistles just to scrape by a meager existence from weeds, grains, cereals. Instead of plucking He's got to plow, sow, harvest, thresh, grind, and bake. That's his new reality. And there's a lot we could say about work and about toil, you know, theology of work. There's a great book by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor. If you want to study work, start there. I recommend it. But that's not actually really the point, is it? If Jesus came to undo the curse and the curse is weeds, why'd he die? Well, let me ask a question then to help make clear what is the point. In the garden, this is a rhetorical question, but you can answer if you want. (laughs) In the garden, what does man do to get life? He just picks fruit from right right here, just receiving from, you can't get more generous than that unless the fruit just falls into your hand, right? That's how the man gets life. Maybe that happened, I don't know. After he sinned, How do you survive? Well, instead of receiving, you're toiling in the ground. You're earning your keep. Instead of receiving life, you're earning life. And it's no different for us today. I mean, how many of us are toiling and working just to feel okay with God? The constant pressure to be a better father, mother, brother, sister, husband, daughter, friend, manager of time, employee, coworker, manager of money, just so you can feel like finally I'm okay because I've accomplished what I'm supposed to do. The constant pressure of like, I didn't have a quiet time this morning or my prayer life isn't as good as it should be as if our relationship with God is so flimsy as to depend on our efforts at pulling weeds up from the ground. We receive life from Christ through the pure generosity of God and we don't earn it, but we keep toiling. Aren't you tired? I am. I'm tired of earning. And in Christ, we can just receive. The apostle Paul is reflecting on this passage when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The labor in the ground with the thorns and the thistles for bread, it is in vain. 
You have to, the amount of forethought and planning you have to put into it just because of the seasonality of the whole thing. If you do it wrong, it rots and you're out of food until the next year. There's so much vanity and just repetition. It feels meaningless. And Paul says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So how is our toil and our work redeemed by Jesus? How can that be true? Well, while the man of dust, and I'm picking up on Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 15, while the man of dust was toiling among the weeds for bread, the man from heaven came down and said, I am the bread. I'm the bread of life. And Jesus, who is himself the word of God, when tempted by the devil in the wilderness, when he had no food, said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then that word of God, the bread of life, the man from heaven, broke bread and gave it to his friends and his followers. And he said, toil and eat. No, he said, take and eat. Just receive this. There's no earning for the cross. There's no earning life. So if we've received Jesus, life from Jesus, there's still labor to do. There's still work. We should read and pray. We should do good. We should grow as brothers, mothers, husbands, fathers, coworkers, etc., etc. But you're in the Lord now. You've already received life, which means you're not doing it to earn anymore, which means you're free. And your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. So it all boils down to this kind of two ways. Either you're going to toil for life and it's going to end in death. Or we stop trying to earn life, receive the work of God, the generosity of God in Jesus, paying for our sins on the cross, though he had no guilt in him whatsoever. We receive that life and we're free. And then we get about our work in the Lord, with the Lord. No pressure. The pressure's off. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Uh, now, the last point of point three, subpoints, I like subpoints, is the dust will give up its dead. <laughs> Look with me at verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. <laughs> now, you may remember from previous sermons or, or the videos or your own studies that Woman, the wife was taken from the man. That's Isha taken from Ish, right? And now the consequence of sin, the woman is going to be ruled by the man. And we're talking about like rule with a chauvinistic sneer. It's not a positive thing. That's not what he's talking about. So the woman comes from the man, but the man will now rule over her. Now the man, Adam, is from the Adama, the ground. And God blessed him and commanded him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, to subdue the ground. 
and the very ground that he was commanded to subdue now will subdue him in death. We're buried in it. What could be more opposite of subduing the ground than reverting back to ground, dust to dust? To go back to dust, to become death, is to lose all of our face-to-faceness with each other and with God. Right? We talked about last week how death is like relational separation from each other and from God. That's why physical death is such a stark thing. It's such a stark kind of imprint that death leaves on this world because what is a more permanent separation from the ones you love and from God than dying and becoming dust? So going back to dust is the sheer opposite of life. It's the utter end of hope. Unless, unless a man who's not from dust can die The Psalms say, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. He's not the man from dust. He's the man from heaven. It's important that he didn't decompose. (laughs) It's theologically important. And it's historically accurate. Because three days later, the man from heaven rose from the grave, having defeated death from the inside out. He was sown like a seed in the ground. And he sprang up like new life never to die again. And that historical, factual resurrection of Jesus, the man from heaven, is proof of two things, living proof. First, that if you belong to Jesus, no grave can hold you down. No grave. If you are in the Lord, there is nothing more certain in this world than your bodily resurrection. Two, no death can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The dust will give up its dead. When Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise. Go read 1 Corinthians 15 this afternoon with this in mind, it's glorious. But that's not just a future reality. Right now, the dust is giving up its dead. Every time we turn from the deadness of sin and rebellion and betrayal to the life and light of Christ, that is resurrection power from God in your life and heart. The dust is giving up its dead. Now, in conclusion, let's put some implications together. And I'm praying the Spirit will minister to our hearts with specificity, like medicine, for the glory of Christ. I see four big implications out of this. Firstly, first implication, no sin will go unpunished. No sin will go unpunished. For God to take mercy seriously, he has to take justice seriously. For God to be serious about grace, he has to be serious about sin. And we need to know that because of the holiness of God, the justice of God, and the love of God, no sin will go unpunished. The only question is, who's going to pay the price? You or Jesus? It will be one or the other. 
Second implication, no sin is beyond the mercy of God. You probably don't believe that. I don't, not deep down on some level. So I'll say it again. No sin is beyond the mercy of God. Only the total final rejection of his mercy. It's not too powerful of a sin for him to forgive. It's that we're just saying no thank you and walking away. But no sin that you commit, no matter how bad you might think it is, and it is bad, is greater than the Savior. Your sin is not bigger than Jesus. It is not. At the cross, remarkably, in a crazy turn of events, Jesus sides with you against your sin. You know, the devil, there's a passage, I can't remember where. That's how the author of Hebrews quotes the Bible. He says, somewhere it is written. So it's okay, it's biblical. Somewhere it says that the devil is accusing the, the saints day and night before the throne of God. He is the accuser. It's his role. Somehow, that's his job. So he's standing there day and night with a finger pointed at you from heaven, so to speak, in the presence of God saying, look at all the filth they've done. Look at how awful they are. And Jesus sides with you against your sin, not by denying the sin, but by paying for it. He says, you're right. That was atrocious. That was a war crime. I'll pay for that one. He sides with us against our sin. Then he crushes the oppressor, shuts up the accuser, and frees you from the one who's enslaved you. Remarkable. No one is too far gone. Third implication, no sorrow and no pain is beyond redemption. There is no pain that you experience that Jesus is not willing able and determined to turn into such profound joy that not only will one day you say worth it, but you'll say, it's better this way. I didn't see it then, but I see it now. One day you'll say that. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction says the man who they threw into the arena with wild animals, who was shipwrecked, who was flogged within just an inch of death numerous times, et cetera, et cetera, who watched his friends and compatriots lose their heads for the faith. He says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He had to write that very clearly because we could never get there on our own without being told. So if it seems unbelievable, that's why. If you belong to Christ, there is absolutely no sorrow that you endure 
that will not end in a joy you can't imagine. Like labor pains and a new baby. Okay, last implication, then I'll be done. No death in this world and no deadness in you is out of the reach of life himself. And I say life himself because we've studied First John and that's how John talks about him. Jesus is life. No relational separation is out of the reach of Jesus to heal. No conflict between humans, no loneliness is too deep a wound for him to heal with life. Loneliness is just an expression of death. No separation and distance from God is too vast for Christ to heal. No distance that you feel between the God of the universe and your own soul can be overcome, cannot be overcome by the sin-atoning, reconciliation-bringing, shalom-giving, God-propitiating blood of Christ. It's what he died for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you, the man from heaven, for your power to give life to us sorry rebels. We praise you for your goodness and your kindness. We ask that you, by the power of your spirit, will begin to turn those corners of darkness in our hearts toward you and fill them with light today, now. <laughs> 